days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and narco capitalist perspective. And tonight, you'll love it. We're talking about Scrooge with Mike C from our Night of Living Dead episode. This can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 56. And this will come out on Christmas Eve. So Merry Christmas, everyone. We hope that uh, you have a very nice time with your friends and your family and all that good stuff. And uh, do join us. Uh, we're going to be having a couple of additional episodes coming out later uh, in the, the next couple of weeks. I believe we're going to do The Ghost in the Shell. And uh, we've got a whole slate of episodes coming up in January. Uh, we even have the possibility of doing a Christmas episode, but it's still up in the air at the moment. Uh, Santa may or may not find his way through the storm to give us the guest that we're seeking, but maybe Rudolph will get out there with his no-so-bright and help us out a little bit. So that if, uh, well, you'll, you'll find it the day after this one comes out. It'll come out on Christmas Day if, if it is a episode for us. And uh, I did also want to mention that it is Merry Christmas. And in fact, you're in for a treat because I just completed adding 23 additional Murray Rothbard lectures. Ten of them are video of Murray providing the lectures, uh, and I've added these to the Rothbard repository, which is a keyword searchable database of now 83, I believe, or 84 separate Murray Rothbard lectures where you can key, keyword search for a term, and then all of the lectures in which he discussed that term are brought up, and you can open them and do a control find and get the actual timestamp of when he discussed that particular point. So there's thousands and thousands of quotes on hundreds of subjects, nearly 100 hours, if not more, of Murray speaking, lecturing, imparting knowledge on Austrian economics, libertarianism, uh, contemporary uh, news events of the time period between you know the 1970s and 80s and early 90s. Right before he died, he uh, has a really great talk on the future of libertarianism right after the fall of the Soviet Union. So that one's definitely one worth checking out. That's one of the new ones. And the other cool thing is you can get access to the Rothbard repository uh, in any number of ways. There are, uh, of course, you can do a direct purchase. 
So go to repository.readrothbard.com. You can uh, pay, I think it's uh, 1095 a month to get access, or conversely, you could also sign up for Tom Wood's Liberty Classroom on our link, and that's available at the actualanarchy.com page or on the repository page itself. Uh, if you buy any level of the Tom Wood's Liberty Classroom, uh, you will get the Rothbard repository thrown in as a bonus. And there are multiple levels of the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. And in fact, through the end of this month, uh, the end of the year, you can get $150 off the normal sale price of the master level membership. So if you are on the fence, uh, let me get you off that fence by letting you know that you can get the Rothbard repository and save $150. We'll also throw in on any level a read it for me, read it for not me basic membership. And that's a really cool service where they uh, take business and personal development books, digest them down into 10 to 12 minute summaries, uh, videos, audio, uh, or you can read a PDF. And uh, rather than reading the entire 300 page book, you can get most of the content or the, the main key concepts in, uh, you know, under 15 minutes. So it's a great way for people who are really busy, uh, have their uh, fingers in too many pies, too many things going on to where you still want to do some development, still want to do some learning, still want to try to find a way to cram in a little bit more information into that <laughs> noggin of yours. Uh, I know I suffer from that myself. So Read It For Me is a really good service for that for me. So uh, I want to share that with you guys. You can get that as a bonus uh, on top of the repository if you buy Tom Wood's Liberty Classroom. The third and final way in which you can get the Rothbard repository is if you support us on Patreon for a $10 a month or more level, and that can be found at patreon.com slash readrothbard. There's a link to that on our tip jar page and also on the repository page. So those are the three different ways in which you can get the Rothbard repository. It's super awesome. Uh, I, I have a few other tricks up my sleeves in the works uh, that I might be able to share with you in, in the future uh, that will make this thing even cooler than it is now. And um, in the meantime, uh, do check us out at our actualanarchy.com slash tip jar page, and you can find out all the other ways that you can support us. Uh, you can start your Amazon shopping. You can get uh, cheap telephone, uh, cell phone service from Republic Wireless. Uh, they just renewed that offer. So if you click on our link, you'll save $20 off of your first uh, month. Uh, another thing you can do is get your hosting through Bluehost with us. And you know what? I'll throw in the Rothbard repository if you do that as well. So click on our Bluehost link. That's on our tip jar page or at the very bottom of the page at actualenergy.com. I will also update the repository with that information so that you can find the Bluehost link. And uh, that'll be a fourth way to get the repository. Uh, this episode where we're going to be talking about Scrooge uh, with Mike C, who was with us for our uh, Night of the Living Dead episode, which I'm going to find out which number that was. I think it was 47. Uh, you can find this one at actualenergy.com slash 56. Ladies and gentlemen, returning guest from episode 47, The Night of the Living Dead, we have Mike C. He came to us via the Liberty Weekly podcast. He was a, a fan of theirs, and he heard about our show and then reached out and said he wanted to be a guest. And so we did do that, and now we have him back. And you're going to love it. You'll love it. This episode of the Actual Energy Podcast, episode 56, talking about Scrooged. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm happy to um, hijack another uh, holiday special. Yeah, the yeah, jury's still yeah, out. We, we, we have a, a, a diminishing shot at still doing the Scrooge McDuck for Christmas. Well, where there's a hope, and or hope springs eternal, I guess, especially in the... Revolutions are built on hope. Yeah, revolutions <laughs> are built on hope. I, I, I think I'd go with the, the whole solstice thing, right, where the sun's at its lowest, and we just got to hold out for it to come back. Oh, yeah, that's today, right? Yeah. No, it's officially, officially winter tomorrow? Yeah. And well, then this, this should be the middle of winter, though, realistically. Like, I feel like our seasons should be um, bookended with the, the solstices and equinoxes in the, in the center of the season, but whatever. It always bugs me. Well, you take that up with uh, Julian, all right? Or, or Gregory. Okay. Whichever calendar we're on. I don't really yeah, know. Yeah. 
Julian Calendar. Mm. So tonight we're going to talk about the Bill Murray movie Scrooged, and we usually start out with a Google description. So this came out in 1988, fantasy drama, one hour, 41 minutes, seven out of 10 on the IMDb, 68% Rotten Tomatoes, came out November 23rd, 1988. So it looks like a Christmas or a Thanksgiving release for the Christmas season. And the Google description says, in this modern take on Charles Dickens, a Christmas carol, Frank Cross, played by Bill Murray, is a wildly successful television executive whose cold ambition and curmudgeonly nature has driven away the love of his life, Claire Phillips. But after firing a staff member, Elliot Laddermilk, played by Bobcat Goldthwaite, on Christmas Eve, Frank is visited by a series of ghosts who give him a chance to reevaluate his actions and right the wrongs of his past. Director Richard Donner, put a little love in your heart. And uh, what's the other thing? Oh, yes, we'll own Christmas. Robert, any... We'll uh, yeah, that was one of the lines. I, just want, I, I, take, I take umbrage with the idea that he made mistakes. I mean, the only mistake he really made, I think, was that he, you know, left his girlfriend, which I don't understand how she likes him at all. He's a total asshole in this whole movie. And for some reason, she still likes him. I, I don't get it. I mean, the real Bill Murray, sure. But the character he plays in this movie is not a kind person to anybody. So I don't, I don't, I don't, I didn't buy that relationship at all. But it's, you know, other than that, it's fine. Yeah, it was weird that he was able to keep employees. <laughs> yeah, how, how terribly he treated them. Yeah, but I mean, it's a '80s comedy. But that release date is just cowardly. When was it? <laughs> the 23rd of November. I mean, that's just. I don't. I feel like you, December 12th, 15th. Mm, yeah, gross and balls. It just seems like. What were they up against? Who knows. Yeah, I have to look it up. I should have. That would have been some good um, sort of cred. I was kind of jealous. You you did um, hard, uh, not hard boiled, Die Hard without me. But I'm, I'm glad you guys found a, a Die Hard version for it. That's uh, that's one special Christmas movie for sure. Yeah, this whole month in Christmas movies. Die Hard was great. I hadn't seen it in a long time, and if you heard our review, it's one of my top movies now. Yeah. Well, you talked about localization of authority, uh, and I I mean that's always kind of in action films, if you noticed. At least since then, uh, the guy, the hero is always a renegade to begin with, no matter what. It's always like government bad, soldier good, right? Because and the state is the only person that can give this guy this this power, right? So, I mean, in the modern sort of version of that, it's usually some guy that's just sick of war or, or whatever. He's you know he's got this shadow on his back, right? Or so recently I, retired or whatever. Yeah, and he's just you know I can't the killing or whatever, right? And then I'm gonna go kill a thousand more men today. Um, but but Die Hard's really good because it's about um, family and and you know reconciling with his wife and like I don't know I, I got choked up when he was talking about how like he wanted to apologize and he couldn't because in the end it didn't matter you know now that twelve terrorists had seized Nakatomi Plaza um, he didn't he should have supported her career and all this stuff right so there's and there's some like that's like some PC um, female empowerment as well that isn't that's quite palatable you know what I mean I'm not didn't didn't piss me off it wasn't shoehorning in it was just like the the central conflict. Or the sort of subconflict of the of the film was this whole like husband and wife thing in the 90s or the 80s, you know, on mm-hmm. top of one of the best villains ever made. Hans Gruber. Hey, Daniel. Oh. Um, the first thing I want to mention in this movie, I thought Die Hard was my favorite Christmas movie of all time, but the night the reindeer died looked fucking <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That movie, I would watch that movie and just love it oh, and Majors? watch it with yeah. as many Lee people Majors. as possible. Oh man, it looks. So good. I wanted it to be real. And you'd follow it with a Bob Goulet Cajun Christmas, right? Yeah. Yeah. All those ads that appear in the beginning looked fantastic. Yeah. It should have been made into real things. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um... It's kind of got that Tarantino effect where they, when they did Grindhouse, people wanted to watch the, the movies the that they made trailers movie. of. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, and they made it. They made Hobo with a shotgun. They made Machete. That's how good the trailers were. So. Yeah, I know what you mean. So, uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone got started. They shot um, Cannibal the Musical, but they shot the trailer, and then they went to people for financing, saying that they, they were in post oh. and ra- raised enough money to make the movie out of, from their trailer. You know, that's actually a very brilliant move, and it's it's a tactic that I talked about with a, a buddy of mine. I was like, okay, always have one more level for things that you're offering to people and charge enough for it to make it worth doing if somebody takes you up on the offer. But that way you don't have to do it ahead of time. Like you don't have to create this product to say, oh, that one's going to be like $1,000. Well, that way if, if they never, if no one ever takes you up on the offer, you never have to do it. But if no, somebody does, fair. then it's worth it to you to do it then for the 1000 bucks, And you've got that like kick in the ass like, all right, Somebody's now depending on me to do it. There's like a time crunch and there's money at play. But, you know, if you're offering something, always have that one more. And you don't even have to like have it really done. Just know that you can do it. And uh, and that way, if somebody takes you up on the offer, just like with the Matt Stone and Trey Parker thing. Well, in their in their case, they were defrauding their investors. <laughs> well. Right, essentially. I say but, yeah, no, I like the idea. I like, I like where you're going with that. Um, yeah, it's one louder, you know. Go from, from 10 to 11. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's do Spinal Tap. All right, so before I derailed you guys, um, I wanted to also mention that in the Wikipedia it says that Bill Murray was very well known for Ghostbusters kind of writing the success of that. So I guess in some of the uh, promos for this, the tagline was, Bill Murray is back among the ghosts, only this time it's three against one. So they're totally playing on the the Ghostbusters stuff there still. Right in the Ghostbusters hotels. Yeah, smart marketing. So Richard Donner said, you saying? What? Go ahead, Mike. Oh, no, just Richard Donner, uh, I found a quote where he said that uh, this was where Bill Murray became an actor. So, so he, was a, like he was a well-known film. comedian until then, and then he was an actor after this because he kind of acts, I guess. Yeah, he gets a little bit, yeah, I suppose he acts a little bit. Yeah, he sold me on, the, on, his, on the, the finale. The finale, the connection, confession, you were choking up about it? I, I, I that. Yeah, ten times in a row now, so, I mean, I'm not bawling anymore, but. But I, I cry in the, uh, I'm quite the pussy. Oh, I, I cry like a baby. But um, when the Put a Little Love in Your Heart played during the credits, I got up and danced. So I nice. was enjoying myself. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, I looked up. Um, I, I, some, some theaters did have people singing. Well, there are accounts of people singing on forums oh, that I looked up. Yeah. Like some of them didn't, obviously. There's a huge level of cynicism. But it's nice to know that like somebody would have experienced that. That would have been pretty special. Yeah, for sure. Oh, you guys forgot Father Loves Beaver. Oh, yeah, I love He's that. He's out chasing Beaver again. Oh, <laughs> man. That wouldn't even land with audience. You'd have to explain it. <laughs> I did write down, yeah, the note, Father Loves Beaver. I thought that was another fantastic one. Absolutely. I'll check it off. Yeah, I didn't mention it. Okay. Well, that takes me into our first note here. What do you think of his strategy of scaring the dickens out of people? <laughs> uh, I like all the puns in this film. I think they did a pretty good job with that. Um, okay, so can we draw a distinction between capitalism as a concept and crass commercialism? Uh, as Because you can critique commercialism or even consumerism without actually saying that the system of trading money for things is wrong. You know, one, one is more of a less economic or ideological and, and more uh, just in terms of like honor and tact and how people should behave. And again, we were talking earlier about how um, uh, shame and guilt are much better substitutions for, for laws than, than having like authority come down on people and having strict you know, lines where things are okay and not okay, but rather guilting people into behavior and shaming them is, is, is much better than giving an authority power. Absolutely. So, so you can criticize commercialism, I think, and, and make some pretty valid, valid arguments 
about you know how it might be a detriment to society without actually endorsing um, the violence of you know authority or laws or, or whatnot. If that makes now, sense. By commercialism, you mean putting value on possessions above people? Is that what you mean? Yeah, something like that. Or, or yeah, or consumerism, I guess, is another word for it. Um, I'm not really sure how to articulate that idea, but like the disposability of, of our lives. I think they covered it a little bit in um, Fight Club. We talked about single-serving lives. But, I mean, those are improvements. So I don't want to say that, that those are necessarily evil. But, uh, I mean, the, the, the trailer he has for... for for uh, their show they're going to put on with, like, the terrorist plane blowing up, like, the nuclear mushroom cloud. Um, it, it, I mean, I think that the comedy of that is that he's illustrating how the guy's got no bottom, you know, for how low he'll go to sell an idea, right? He's kind of like a used car yeah. salesman in a lot of ways. Not those for people sure. are bad people. Yeah, he will. But is he ultimately responsible for the death that it ultimately claims? No, no absolutely not. Um, I'm sure okay. they'd argue that now. But my point is, it's okay to criticize those things, right? Like, it's, it's almost important to criticize those things when people are being kind of shitty people, but not illegal, right? That makes... So, like, a lot of these movies will, like, especially in the, you know, 80s and 70s and 90s and stuff, um, it wasn't this full-blown assault on our, our economic systems. It was just like, hey, you know, we're kind of getting out of control and people are being kind of shitty to each other, so remember to be nice to each other. is a very central theme in a lot of these kinds of movies, right? Especially Christmas movies. It's about, sure. you know, focusing on the family instead of the crass commercialism of making sure you get the right toy or, or whatnot. I think Charlie Brown did it first. Well, in a much more sort of Christian way, I guess. Yeah, no, Daniel, you wanted to talk about this a bit, I know, right? You wanted to talk about that if it bleeds, it leads, if his, uh, his tact and marketing this show. Yeah, there's many different facets that I saw in this, and that, you know, he was trying to go to base emotions to sell this thing. So he's using fear, sometimes they use sex, sometimes they use other tactics to get an emotional, visceral response. And he was telling people that they needed to watch this special as if their lives depended on it, and they had all the imagery and the mushroom cloud and all that stuff that you were talking about. But in a way... You know, it is sensationalizing to get the attention, but it's also fraudulent, right? Like, he's misrepresenting what this is. I mean, this is a Dickens classic uh, with Mary Lou Retton as Tiny Tim. Like, there's nothing uh, about terrorists in this. There's nothing of... And, of course, it's, you know... I mean, that's just how They're playing works, with though, that right? in, in the movie. But it reminded me of um, The War of the Worlds. Was that H.G. Uh, Wells? Um, and who who read it out on the radio? And, and Orson Welles. Orson Welles, okay. He, he, he read it. Yeah, and people started thinking that it was like actually happening and, and had a bit of a, of a hysteria. Um, I, I read into it a little bit um, a few years ago, and, and I guess it, was, it wasn't as much of a hysteria as I think is often um, thought of. Like it was actually well, very they're gonna isolated. Take the, they'll take the most extreme example and hold that up as, you know, this can happen. Or, I mean, it, it, can, it doesn't even have to be a warning. It can just be like, here's an interesting thing that happened in this most extreme circumstance. Right, yeah. And so that, this instance of him doing this promo reminded me of, of that instance of the world of the worlds. And the, if it bleeds, it leads the sensationalism, the, the selling on uh, the emotional vis visceral stuff. And he even had the, the sex thing in there where they could see the nipples of one of the dancers. And I think he said, you know, I think if, if Chuck Dickens were here, he'd want to see your nipples. <laughs> or, or, uh, my, my favorite line is like, I, I can't really see them. And these guys are really looking. Like, <laughs> that comedy just doesn't happen anymore. Bill Murray's just got such a Brutal, dry wit to him. It's just beautiful. Yeah. yeah, yeah I wonder how, I mean, how much of this is, uh, is Murray ad-libbing, because in Ghostbusters, oh. apparently he ad-libbed many of his lines. Same. Yeah. Same, except for, like, key plot points, but definitely they, uh, they just gave him a pretty, pretty long leash, from what I hear. Yeah. It's, Which you would want to do, like, I think. Mm-hmm. 
use everyone's mind as much as you can. Try to um, try not to um, structure things from the top down too unilaterally. Well, so let's talk about. I mean, there would be feedback or uh, blowback, I would suppose, from the way that they, the way that he made this ad, right? I mean, like Daniel's saying, it is a bit of false advertising. So when they do tune in, uh, one, they would be seeing content that they would not be expecting. But also, there might be people that would be turned off by this level of advertising, right? I mean, yeah, well, all the people in, his, in that room were. Yeah, but in this universe, the, the masses are, are eating it up, right? And so he's, um, I mean, in a lot of ways, the film is about leadership and how he should lead his, the people that he's brainwashing or that he's speaking to in a, in a more positive way, which is ultimately how the climax plays out, right? So, well, yeah, and I had a problem with that. I mean, how the climax plays out, like when the ghost of Christmas future, and we're skipping ahead, I know, but whatever, um, is this Grim Reaper guy, and he shows him uh, the scene that hasn't happened yet of his girlfriend mistreating some poor kids, and she's turned into this you know, carbon copy of him, all from yeah. this one conversation that he had. Well, that's well you know, Frank fear, just said though, this one thing reality. to me, and then blah, blah, blah. That gives Frank way too much credit, way too much power of influence over people. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, it's his own fear. It's his fear of the future. It's not reality. If that, okay, well, if you take it that way, I suppose. Yeah, well, that's, I have to. Otherwise, I can't reconcile the, the lack of logic like you just pointed out. So. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And that was the scrape him off, save yourself? Yeah, and yeah. I mean, it would be horrible because what he liked about her was her more feminine sort of qualities, right? Her maternity, innocence, her, and yeah, her love, and caring. well, and I mean, well, what he also what ultimately sort of pushed them apart, right? So he he shows up to the the Ninth Street shelter, uh, and she's actually committing herself to work the way he commits himself to work. So in in that way, they're very similar. They could have the same. In fact, that's actually what ends up having like the the fallout, right? Where he he doesn't have her time or her attention immediately, which is presumably what her concern her her complaint was in the the previous act, right? In the past. So, um, but he he's upset not with her giving charity, but but how poorly it's run. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so mm. I thought that was kind of funny. But um, I guess I guess the movie points to the idea that the people that are giving have a hard time organizing, right? So yeah, he said uh, be... something to the effect that they're volunteers because no one would pay them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, I mean, he's, <laughs> that's the beauty of this. He's so despicable, but um, he's so likable at the same time. Only Bruno Murray could have pulled this off because uh, I mean, the original Ebenezer was a, a user. Uh, uh, he was a user, he was a money lender, right? Yeah, yeah. Wait, well, this guy is Frank Cross. So that's there's more of a Christian kind of undertone to it. Um, yeah. Did you guys notice in the in the room where he met his brother, they had that uh, the cross definition. Yeah, the cross definition across the the top of the wall. There's a cross something you mail you nail people to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm um, at the oh man, we're just jumping all over the place. You may have to cut this up because we're going right to the end. Well, can, <laughs> do you want to take we, it scene by scene? A little bit. I have another thing because we got to like set the scene with uh, Louder Milk, right? Because he's the yeah. guy telling Cross, like, hey, we've already been running some of these other promos, and it's getting a response, and our studies indicate that people are going to tune in, and he's like, shut up, Loudermilk, you know, and he fires him. Yeah, he's a shitty employer, really, in a lot of ways. Right, but it just seems a little bit weird to me that somebody would, who's seeking to be profitable in their business, um, would disregard the research that they're doing that indicates that, hey, this thing is going to play really well, it's going to be profitable, but I guess he's kind of a maverick. 
he's power hungry well, as well. He sees that as like he's devoted his life to becoming in charge. So that's why he's so afraid of but the if, second guy coming in. Right, but if he's so such a maverick, then why does he even pay for this research to be done in the first place? If he's not going to take it into account, that doesn't right. make any sense. Right, especially if he's so cheap in so many other ways, like he's handing out towels as Christmas gifts and. Apparently, he's underpaying his uh, secretary. Well, I, I mean, it kind of gets muddled, too, because how much of that money is his? Does he own the company? Is he a CEO? Is he an executive? Like, yeah, I think they I mean, say he's, yeah, he's like the president. head of whatever, but it didn't yeah. say. So I'm yeah. not sure, like, how much money he gets to keep himself when he gives people towels, but we just kind of, because this is taking place in the 80s and not, um, you know, 1875 or whenever, the, whenever Dickens wrote his stuff, right? So it doesn't, it, yeah. honestly, like, it starts to fall apart when you start poking holes at it like that, for sure. But he's a miser. What we do. No, and that's, that's totally fair. He's, he's a miser. Um, he's sort of power-hungry as well as money-hungry, so he doesn't listen to other people's opinions. He gets paranoid when um, his boss uh, brings in another, another guy to start directing this, this project of his, because he knows that uh, he has to fight this guy um, for his position. Right. You know? So... And but it's not. I mean, it's not uh, unfounded because ultimately that guy's after his job. So yeah, the I wonder. This LA is guy. I wonder. I mean, this this movie actually has elevator operators, which don't exist anymore. Maybe mm-hmm. in some places. One down, does, sir. But I wonder when those actually went away. Another thanks to advancements. I think or it would have that? been a status symbol back then, anyway. Like in the '88, it would have been a status symbol more than a than a necessity. Yeah, technological necessity, right? Yeah, probably. Anyway, didn't mean to derail us. No, there's okay. there's a bit of um, I think Rothbard talks about it, or maybe it's Walter Block. He talks about when um, the elevator operators either had a, a minimum wage increase or the unionized or something, and that you didn't see an immediate change, but within a couple of years you started seeing automation, and it's mm-hmm. very similar to what's going on today with like fast food, as people so demand have, higher and higher minimum wages and whatnot. That it, yeah, it right. misallocates uh, resources so that they'll invest in technologies to replace those overpriced uh, inputs, which, I mean, I'm talking about people here, but, you know, labor. Labor is overpriced, so then they're going to seek alternatives. Right, faster than they otherwise would have. Yeah, I mean, it's not like they wouldn't have done it anyway at some point, but it certainly precipitated the, the change. That's not right. that's a mixed metaphor, but you know what I mean. Hey, we did some economics. That's good. Well, yeah, Christmas movies are always like this too, right? Because if they make them properly, it doesn't really challenge, it shouldn't challenge capitalism unto itself. What it should do is say, hey, like, be as nice as we can so that no one has to step in and make it horribly worse. Like, um, don't be a dick and, and steal someone, some old lady's taxi cab? Yeah, like, uh, it's not this a breach the of the non, non-aggression principle, that's, but you're, you're, you're hurting the game. You know, you're hurting the game by being a monopoly. You're hurting the game by being too power hungry and ultimately yourself because mankind should be our business. Um, in, okay, so anarchy, uh, I think one of the greatest benefits of it or the, the greatest appeals uh, is that you don't utilize just one person's mind. You utilize everyone's input, right? So mm-hmm. you can kind of transpose that onto leadership as well, right? A good leader will um, take the information that he or she can get from what's, you know, sort of his or her subordinates um, and utilize that. So again, like why would he, why would they do research that he wasn't going to listen to if he's, you know, but, but that's his essential flaw, right? That's like the biggest flaw that they could, that's the flaw um, from the, uh, you know, the original character that they decided to, to focus on, I think the most. You know, yeah. we mentioned his boss earlier and his boss was into the research and he was saying things like, oh, the research is indicating that cats are now starting to watch television. So let's do programming for cats. So perhaps the Elliot Loudermouth research was directed from on high, 
And Bill Murray's character doesn't respect that because he is a maverick. He wants to do his own thing. And as it's revealed through Christmas Past, he's the one who's started at the ground floor and worked his way up within the company. Yeah, the mailroom to being the dog uh, children's character and and so on. So he's the one scrapping and trying to figure out ways to um, be unconventional and be successful. So I can see now that we've sort of talked this through that he didn't respect the Loudermilk stuff, but it was probably coming from his boss. Yeah. And, I mean, does that justify putting a mirror in a drawer beside your desk so that you can look at yourself before you address a table full of people? I don't know. That seems a little narcissistic. I was wondering <laughs> if that was like a, a, like a Coke thing, because, like, in the 80s, Coke was a big deal. Oh, maybe. I don't know. This felt pretty... It was edgy, but it didn't feel um, corrupt in that sense. I, I don't feel like there was any... There was a little bit of drinking, that's about it. It, was, it felt... And there's, like... The sex was pretty, um, like, mellow... You know, there was a sexuality to some of the dancers and stuff, but it wasn't like nothing was really um, vice driven. I don't know. I, I, I just saw it as him being a narcissist because for good reason. He came from the mailroom and through his brilliance and, and um, you know, gumption and elbow grease, he got himself right to the very top. So why would he listen to anybody? Yeah, let me take a, it's a good point and let me take a second and um, defend Frank Cross, the original character, for a minute here. Um, I would say he clearly has flaws. He's clearly not like a perfect human being. We're not all perfect human beings. But he's absolutely unnecessarily an asshole to many people for almost no reason. But he also creates a ton of value. Not only does he run this whole network and he creates such amazing things like Father Loves Beaver and The Night of the, the Reindeer Died. I mean, if, if it takes an asshole to create that sort of brilliant programming, I'm glad that asshole exists. If well, I'll do, you get this kind of sanitized version of him at the end and he's unable to make that sort of brilliant programming, then I'll probably, you know, from a distance, prefer the original version, Frank Cross. Yeah, well, presumably he would change a little bit, but I mean, hopefully he maintains his ability to run a station, right? Network. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, it, capitalism is great because it allows for all these different creative people to offer their own unique perspectives and their unique contributions to the world. And I think that, you know, maybe we don't get Father Loves Beaver if uh, he's uh, blubbering and crying and has a really happy home life. And maybe, you know, when he gets back together with what's-her-name, then maybe it's not so great. So that's interesting you mentioned that, actually, because they specifically talk about that in, in his past. He was raised by television and had bad upbringing. I think Stefan Molyneux would have had a field day um, with that, who's generally boasted bad parenting whenever there's something can't be solved. Um, right. But yeah, uh, <clears throat> well, I'll do you one better. How about this? Coming back okay. to your point originally. Um, All right. The original character, Ebenezer Scrooge, would not have been able to help Tiny Tim unless he was a miser and had all that money. There's no way he could have been as extravagant and, and lush with his gifts when he had his epiphany if he wasn't filthy rich going into that scene. So it's kind of right. interesting, right? So right, yeah. You sort of, and I think this movie I like better than Dickens because they balance this. They make him, he's a quite an appealing character and you kind of, I don't mind that he's an asshole. I just think it, it's kind of funny and you're like, oh, you're just hurting yourself. And then they explain it that like, you know, he was raised so-so and he had a lack of confidence and then he, he got a woman and he, he moved his way up and then he ended up losing her to his career because, well, he chose the one over the other and he's, he's embittered by the, mis- the decision. Right. But, you know, and then he's given a sort of a Christmas second chance kind of thing, right? But these ghosts and they, they show him that 
maybe he should have balanced his his home life with his his uh, his work, the, what he wanted to accomplish. And ultimately, that's you know that that manifests ultimately in he's in a coffin and like what are you what are you leaving behind? A legacy of being a prick? Well, what was the point in climbing to straddle the the top of the the mountain or whatever if he leaves didn't... behind father loves beaver i'm sorry yeah. man no no don't get me wrong <laughs> like the reindeer died he's a legend he's a bloody legend yeah no he invented the miniseries or something like that right he uh he's the youngest he, he's the youngest uh president in uh ibc history ibc history so and that that's true but ultimately it leaves him he's realized i mean maybe the ghosts are just a manifestation of that right all right, so get... let, let's go to the to the girlfriend situation because I saw it differently. I saw her leave him. She did. Because but... he was devoted to his job, and so she was not being supportive of him yes. knowing that he, he desired and needed to feel this validation of yes. accomplishing things. So, so really, had... it's kind of on her. Well, and a third way to say that is that they had different priorities, and yeah. ultimately both of them regretted the decision to, to part. Because at any point in a breakup, you can, you can renegotiate you know, the, the, the deal breakers that the other person is presenting. So she probably came to him a few times and said, hey, I, I realize that this is important to you. Maybe you should back off a little bit because I'm starting to miss you. I liked you before when you were a bit more like, less hungry for, or less ambitious, right? which I've never heard from a woman in my life. But um, sorry, I just... Derailed myself. No, that's there. A, I think that's an accurate accurate criticism. I, I've never heard of a woman not enjoying their significant other's ambition. Well, the fruits of that's it. That's the anyway. one thing they look for. Well, yeah, but presumably, presumably, he gave too much of himself, so he needed that um, that other person, that partner in his life, to help balance him out. And I mean, he found that in that, that's why um, Jacob Marley, or uh, what's the name of his boss in this, that was like Marlo. his friend. Lou. So he, yeah. So he disrupted, like he he imbalanced himself by by finding a partnership in business rather than in in love and the family, right? Which is fulfilling the natural order of things rather than just accumulating wealth. You should try to do both. That makes sense. Like I, I just don't think it's like it doesn't negate the idea of like getting into a position of power and accumulating wealth and then creating jobs and 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 prosperity through that leadership. To it, it doesn't negate the idea of like having a family. Yeah, and I think on an individual basis, you're right. He should have tried to strike a work-life balance that would have yeah. not left him wanting for that 15-year period where they were broken up. Yeah. But Mike makes a great point in that all his driving and determination has created this this entertainment network that is able to employ all these people and provide jobs and wealth and security for all these people. Yeah, and it's it goes it goes way further. It, it yeah. goes way further in the original the material, the source material that you're getting it from, right? Because you you can't get Tiny Tim the surgery he needs to save his life if he didn't have the money. I mean, now you could crowdsource it, so whatever. But <laughs> yeah, we've also made this point on our previous episode of uh, doing the Christmas Carol in that Scrooge was providing a valuable service. He was profitable. He was making money, yeah. and with him being gone, we can only assume economically that his customers would have had to go to a lower uh, tiered option, like the next best option, which would have been less profitable or less satisfactory to them as consumers. Yeah, yeah no, that's that's the thing. So I, I, but I don't think it's an indictment of even usury. I just think it's an indictment of being a miser, of you know, not not spending your money a little bit. And and I mean, if you if you're hogging all of the power for yourself too, in terms of creativity. So if we move back to Cross, um, he was leading, you know, uh, basically an artistic co-op that is a corporation producing, you know, <laughs> Father Loves Beaver. Um, Classic uh, art like Father Loves Beaver. Yes. Yeah. It requires, I mean, you, the more people involved, I mean, I don't know, I've got 
maybe I got Star Wars on my mind, but Lucas's movies where he took them on all himself were garbage. <laughs> but the ones that uh, had many people involved and limitations and and the power was sort of shared around um, because of those limitations uh, were better. So I don't know if you'd get, you know, I don't know if he made Father Loves Beaver so much as oversaw it, right? So uh, yeah. it, it, you shouldn't be a miser with, you shouldn't hoard money. It needs to circulate for one, right? You're allowed to, you're allowed to hoard it if you want to, to whatever level. But there is a point at which, you know, can, you're going to be able to spend it before you die kind of thing. Uh, and then the same can be true. You can sort of transpose that model over, over power and, in, in leadership positions as well, right? So it's kind of a, but it, it's not, the criticism isn't universal. Like you said, it's, it's a personal criticism. It's a, it's a character and a story that's, you know. Yeah, and, I mean, I, I, you know, he was a shitty boss, but these people still work for him. So there wasn't somebody offering them a better job. Yeah, presumably. So, you know, otherwise they would have taken it. So there's the secretary that was complaining about her Christmas bonus or the raise. And then the, uh, the fairy ghost was like beating them up until he gave him a, gave her a raise or promised to give her like a raise. I, yeah. I, I was really offended by that scene. <laughs> like, yes, it's well, like not his fault. Her, her, her success is not his responsibility. Yeah, it's not his fault. She's got five kids. She was an excellent employee, though, and probably um, underappreciated. Uh, now, can ghosts break the non-aggression principle? <laughs> that one did. They all did, right? It's a ghoster. Oh, what a fantastic movie! Yeah, she's a great actress. All right. So, speaking of the non-aggression principle, let's talk about the two situations. One was the taxi cab he takes from the old lady. I feel like that was a property rights violation because she had, in the parlance of getting a cab at that time, she had hailed that cab. And yeah, but it's, up, it from her. That shit. it's up to the cabbie to to, um, to enforce it or recognize to enforce it. That. Yeah, or to recognize it. I mean, it may not matter to him. It's obviously not worth the time because his, his time is money, right? But I mean, maybe that's because of the city and their their taxi driving medallions or something like that. I'm going to disagree. I don't think it's up to the taxi driver per se to enforce that or not. I think that there is a um, an expectation that this is how you hail a cab. She yes. had hailed the cab. So <clears throat> I think that he violated, whether he was aware of it or not, I think he violated her in that way. And that sounds really dirty. But also I think Uber solves this problem. Like the only reason that there was a cab problem to begin with is because there's the medallion system. Yes. And there's a shortage of cabs. Artificial scarcity. Yeah, okay, so technically he... Uh, yeah, I'm going to go... Yeah, I'll lean with Daniel on this one. I think uh, uh, that was... Just to balance it out, I'm going to say that it's not a crime. It's just a dick move. I'll take that. <laughs> it's I'll it's, take a, it's a total violation of social convention, but social conventions yeah. are not necessarily enforceable. So take, you yeah, and I wouldn't say it's necessarily an NAP violation. Yeah. W- would you say that he stole anything from her? She's no, that's my point. Is it's 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 up to the yeah. cabbie to decide whether or not somebody can ride in this cab. But again, the government's involved as soon as you have a cab, right? So. Yeah. In our in our roadless utopia, there would be no cabs. Yeah. Fuck roads. Yeah. Yeah, we'd be just teleporting everywhere. You guys have seen that that pie chart that says, you know, why I'm an anarchist, and it says I, because I hate roads. It's like one of the yeah. biggest pieces of the pie. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's it's uh, it was a it was a red and uh, no, sorry, it was a black and yellow pie divided right down the center, and it said things uh, libertarians hate, and it said roads, and the other one was each other. <laughs> there other other libertarian, <laughs> yeah. Yes. They're moral enemies with everyone and even themselves half the time. So, but that's good. If you're arguing about the minutia over what is correct and what isn't, you're not trying to take over other people's shit. So, uh, Paul Schaefer's in this oh, movie. Man. The uh, the musician guy. Yeah, yeah. The he's in there. David Letterman. Mm. Yeah, yeah. All right. One other. Fine. The other scenario I wanted to to ask about was when his recently dead boss Lou 
uh, approaches and, and enters his office, and Bill Murray has a gun and shoots at him. And is yeah, is he justified in shooting this intruder, not knowing who he is yet, not knowing what's going on? His back was turned. He was over there making a drink. And Bill Murray, who in New York City had a gun, which even in the 80s, I think that was like a bit of a difficult thing. But I, do you think he was justified in shooting this intruder in his office? Well, he's, he's obviously a ghost. Well, he's so, a rotting corpse. <laughs> yeah, I feel, like, I feel like you have the reasonable expectation to not be confronted by a rotting corpse that's moving around. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I get it. Like, the ghost interact. I don't know. The... Then, then every time they busted a ghost in, uh, you know, the prequel to this movie, uh, they were violating the ghost's rights. Well, he didn't know he was a ghost yet, though. Like, upon his initial entry into the office, he's just some disheveled intruder. Yeah, I guess he's just, he's scary enough, though we could get into... Doesn't he, like, break in, though? He, like, smashes down the door? Yeah, he does. He, he, he busts the door. He's pounding on the door, and then the door explodes, so that's a much easier case uh, yeah. than you mentioned it. Yeah, I, someone smashes and explodes my door. I'm Thank I'm unloading. God. That person's not coming in to sell me cookies. I thought we broke the NAP. But there is a big NAP violation in this movie for sure. I mean, there's not even a debate. It's when Bobcat Goldthwait comes back with a shotgun and starts shooting at Bill Murray. No, no, you can't just fire people at Christmas. <laughs> he was shooting that shotgun in self-defense, clearly. The, uh, the woman from the censorship um, sexually assaults... Um, Frank crosses competition while that guy's tied up under the mistletoe at the yep. end as well. She That's, sure does. But yeah, back then it was still funny, which is fine. <laughs> yep. So. And it's a woman doing a demand, so, you know. Yeah, he kisses he kisses his employee under the mistletoe as well with the the rocket dancer or the solid gold dancer. Yeah, that's right. Which would have been some sort of violation, I'm sure, because he has some sort of vague institutional power. Something, something, something. Yep, yep, power, privilege, so rape or sexual assault. Yeah. See, we're ruining this film. This <laughs> is a Christmas movie. It's about, um, and it comes from a better time for filmmaking. I know, I know I've said that a hundred times, so I'm going to beat it to death. It's, oh, boom. What's that? Oh, Ross, he lost, I left again. He's back now. No, All right. Back now. Back again. Tag How long have you been losing for? Uh, not, not too long. Not too long. You guys were talking about the, uh, the actual NAP violation with Loudermilk coming back with a shotgun. Yep. That's right. So we moved past the uh, the woman from the FCC, or is it FCC or the oh yeah yeah, yeah. she was Bill Cosby and the guy yeah yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So and that's it's funny back then, right? Because we can still laugh about things, situations that obviously aren't okay. Like kicking a cat's not okay either, right? But (laughs) right, he he gets pissed off and kicks the cat across the room. Like that's it it gets a chuckle out of me unless I think about it. (laughs) It's a pretty horrible thing to do. So, um, but yeah, you can just kind of laugh stuff off, right? When it's when it's just a story. It's not, you know, meant to, well, it is, I mean, it's meant to convey ideas and even some of them are universal, but, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, justify behavior. You're still making your own decisions after you watch the movie. So, so with the ghost of, um, well, it isn't a ghost, but he, after the ghost of, um, she uppercuts him with the toaster hmm. and he falls down into the sewer and then he sees the frozen guy. Oh, yeah. And this is like his guilt playing on him but i want to reiterate i mean he's not responsible for that guy's choices i no, but i don't understand why he feels so guilty i mean yeah he could have given the guy like a couple bucks or whatever but you don't have any positive obligations to do no. that I mean, yeah it's a nice thing to do no the movie's about things that aren't like litigious though like right. obviously he's not he's not obligated to do that he's, otherwise the movie would be about um health care and taxes you know <laughs> it, would, it would be arguing it would it would be arguing that like it would, it would be like uh 
some righteous tax man that comes and collects taxes for the from the rich to give to the poor. Like that would be the movie. Um, this is about starring uh, Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> no, one of those one of those rich Hollywood people that talk all the time about um, spending other people's money and not owning guns, even though they're surrounded by guards. Um, and starring in saying? movies where guns solve problems. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Irony. Hypocrisy. <laughs> where would we, we where would we be without it though? In terms of that's like the last thing you can joke about, right? Um, but anyway, it's 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 about being a better person and finding that balance and things like that. And yeah, guys, I think it's perfectly reasonable to guilt people into being better. Now that doesn't mean Bill Murray should uh, or Frank Cross should should impoverish himself or start running his company in a fiscally irresponsible way. It's just that like he had an excess of of um, resources and he felt guilty for not solving problems that were right in front of him that you know when confronted with them were pretty bad that's all I think that's a fair claim you think so yeah so you agree with the movie's basic claim then yeah that we should like not that we should help each other and form communities and that's the kind of sort of collectivism I guess for lack of a better word like but you you do admit that you do admit that he is helping people by working though yes absolutely and I think I don't think the movie I don't think this movie uh, challenges that in any way. He's hard on on his like highest up employees, and the movie talks about how maybe he should have been a little bit more generous with them because they're they're obviously very valuable to him. They they illustrate that like the with uh, his secretary, which is half of Bob Cratchit, um, is obviously extremely like, important to his work. You know, yeah. she's very if she's he submissive. Late, he has to work late. Yeah, right. all that stuff, right? So, like, that unto itself, like, she should be able to, to negotiate her position better, but she's simply not because she's got too many, um, there's too much of a risk in renegotiating probably in her mind. I guess that's assumed, right? Because because she lost her husband and she's supporting all these people. So she doesn't want to risk challenging this lunatic that fires people on Christmas and looks at himself in a mirror before he goes into a meeting, you know? Right. Or no, sorry, during a meeting in a drawer that's in the, the table. Um so yeah it's not it's not indicting him for for doing it it's just saying that like you know he he's almost realizing that he should have I mean isn't that the the whole point is that he realizes that he should be making different slightly different decisions in terms of the people in his life that are helping him Yeah I think the movie says that hey you'll be a happier person yeah. if you be a little bit more generous with your resources and time and help and whatever if you put your efforts more in this area as opposed to only in this other area, that you'll be more of a happy, complete, rounded person. And I think that's a perfectly valid statement to make. Yeah, and don't be Daniel. as much of a dick a little bit. Yeah, yeah I'd be, I'd be, be sad, though. I'd be really sad to like if, I, if, if Frank Cross was in my life and then he had this epiphany and he wasn't a total asshole anymore because I think it's hilarious. <laughs> like, oh, man. Um, so these guys are really looking. Yeah, I mean, they're, <laughs> they're really like he's, you don't you don't get those genius lines if he's like Mr. Sappy Nice Guy. Yeah, because he's not worried about like he's too worried about hurting people's feelings, and I don't think you should ever be worried about hurting people's feelings. Well, maybe that's not true. I don't like universals; they never work. <laughs> um, but yeah, so at the end, so and I do get choked up because he's not talking about some like we need to help all the people. He's saying. You need to do something. You personally, if you if you have something to help your community with, you should personally engage that community and try to make it more um, functioning, right? Like so that that to me is just a much better message than most of what I see uh, along these lines. Like it's usually about how yeah. you know. So you need to do something is, better. Or we or yeah, government. 
Yeah, and the the idea of like uh, healthcare didn't even exist when the source material came out. So like that's why Dickens sort of managed to to get a uh, something I can agree with, right? Because like if if you would come back to this sixty years after he wrote it, I'm sure that there would have been more um, more <laughs> more socialist sort of uh, solutions to the problems that he was presenting, right? Like in terms of ideological solutions as opposed to practical solutions. So I, yeah, that, that's kind of why I get choked up with the, with the Bill Murray thing because he's just kind of like, yeah, give people a sandwich or if you've got an extra blanket, give them that. Like, and, and the, the homeless guy that died, he, he personally uh, interacted with him and I think is why he was so upset by that because he said, like, this, guy's, this guy wasn't an asshole, you know? He wasn't trying to break into my house or anything. So. Okay, so here's a controversial opinion and it's not really held by me, but I'm throwing it in to stir up the pot. Um, today in the Tom Woods group, uh, somebody posted that uh, they don't like poor people and that any kind of charity in the way that, you know, we put our resources towards more of what we want to see in this world, that if you give poor people charity, you're just encouraging them to be poor and you are essentially paying for them to be poor. So the guy in the Tom Woods group, I'm not going to mention names, is basically saying, you know, don't, don't give any charity, you're just encouraging them to be stupid and poor. And the only way that they're going to, well, he was saying that, you know, when they die, they'll actually be useful. I'm not going to take it to that level, but that well, like you would actually be doing them. Out of them or? Yeah, pretty much soil and green and whatever. Okay. But um, if you were to, you know, not support them, they would be actually be forced to be, you know, productive and whatever. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, I, I understand. I just think that it's a pretty reduction, reductionist kind of way to argue it because I mean if you give somebody too much money they're not poor anymore so you, you are eliminating the thing that you don't like in a way if that makes sense I mean if you're only if you're giving somebody enough money for a drink to continue living on the street and getting drunk then yeah I I think obviously opportunities are better than than cash you know um, mm-hmm. okay uh, most poor people are less enjoyable to be around than middle-class people generally so um, my sister a few years back it was about minus oh fuck what uh, minus thirty two thirty five degrees in Canada which is centigrade I'm not sure what that is and you're getting close to minus forty though somewhere in there right I'm really really cold yeah, yeah. Like, minus like, forty like, is, is the same in both so you're gonna die right like these are um, uh, conditions in which that if you're you, know, you can die of exposure essentially right and she heard uh, two homeless people a man and a woman arguing outside of her house about just normal relationship stuff and she wanted to invite them in but she was by herself and not able to defend herself so she couldn't do that reasonably in, in, from her position um, and it really upset her because they were just they were people having like they were talking about oh you never support me and all this stuff right but they were like wandering around on the street at night in, in the dead of winter now there are options uh, where I live so it's not necessarily like a community's problem there are there are options to do this but I mean, at, at what point do you say, like, too bad to somebody, right, when they're unable to help themselves, right? So, Well, um, that springs to mind. I don't mean to hijack what you just said, but um, I was listening to a podcast recently called Risk, and it's a storytelling podcast, and the guy was relating a story of him and a couple of buddies traveling the Alcan, the Alaska-Canada Highway, mm-hmm. in the middle of winter, and they, like, run out of gas on the side of the road. And he said, he made the claim that it's actually illegal if you run into a a hitchhiker, because you will die almost, you know, you will not last very long in those temperatures. It's actually illegal for you to not stop and pick up that hitchhiker. Do you know if that's true or not? I don't know, because I would, I would think that it would be the opposite. If anything, well, I would think that, like in terms of legality, usually governments tend to, but um, 
Okay, so we do have we do have laws against evicting people or shutting off heat in the winter. So there are there are special limitations on property rights. Um, and uh, the energy here is sort of half government, half privatized. It's hard to explain, um, but basically highly regulated private. Um, and you're not allowed to shut somebody's heat off. You can you can throttle electricity. You can throttle heat. Not not heat rather. You can throttle electricity, but you can't. Um, shut off heat or evict people. So it does stand to reason in the even harsher environments that they might have some sort of um, collectivist rules, sort of hard and fast rules. It strikes, it strikes me as a, a law that doesn't really affect anything. Like, I can't imagine people that would... I mean, if you're, if you're going to not pick somebody up, you don't care that there's a law anyway. Well, but if they're going to die, you don't I'm need not a sure lot to you, you to do that anyway. Like, how would you enforce it if, like, the person that witnessed it is going to die of exposure in 30, 40 minutes? Like, <laughs> right. Seems kind of pointless, yeah. but whatever. I mean, yeah. sometimes sometimes yeah, words written real. down help people behave the way they're supposed to, I guess, is maybe the theory behind it. I mean, I understand the theory, but it just seems like it's pointless. But I mean, that's not oh, it is. Most laws are. Lots of pointless rules. Yeah, yeah exactly. Most we're, people don't want to murder each other. They don't want to steal each other's shit. We have an inherent understanding of how things are supposed to work. It's like encoded in our DNA. So I'm not really... Exactly. The, the more laws there are, the more corrupt a society, right? Yep. Ah, speaking of natural things, I guess I could segue into one point I had, because I saw a, a little bit of esoteric stuff. Because his name was Cross, which is a, obviously a Christian symbol. Um, mm-hmm. Bob Cratchit is divided into two people. So the, the female version, um, her husband died. And so Tiny Tim is lacking paternity. Um, and Frank Cross sort of provides that with his, um, his good leadership, his sort of fatherly wisdom and, and charity, um, like a good king. Uh, and then Tiny Tim's able to speak. So I thought that was kind of, I don't know, I might be reaching there. Um, and also, uh, I mean, obviously the solstice and Christmas are the same thing, right? So it's an ancient ancient astrological significance because the sun's gone for three days, it's in repose, and then it returns. That's why we have like, yep. right? So the sun returns. Yep. That's probably, that's yep. arguably why Jesus came back after three days as well in the Christian pretty, mythology. Yeah, pretty pretty blatant ripoff there, in my opinion. Yeah, but okay. well, and that's fine, that's yep. just, that's just cultures eating each other. It's a cultural appropriation, um, like my Christmas yeah, tree. Some of the original. But uh, when he comes back from the the Grim Reaper and seeing the future and death and everything, there's like uh, there's a sun in that little hallway when when he comes out of the elevator. I just thought it was interesting because like the sun had returned. And so and then there's after that he starts he starts being like like the good father, right? Oh right, yeah yeah. So I don't know if I'm reaching there or I mean the director might have done it subconsciously or they they might have wrote it in there on purpose. Uh, I bet you it's on purpose. Yeah. That sun was that was like a sculpture in the hallway, in the yeah. elevator hallway. Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting because, yeah, like the sun leaves and then we're all like, that's why we, you know, all come together in this horribly bleak time. We're waiting for the sun to come back. And we're waiting to like see if we get through the winter and everything. And that's why we. That's why there's so much sort of like not communism, but um, like kind of pseudo collectivist thinking. We're thinking more in terms of our community and we're supposed to help each other out a little bit because the benefit to our society uh, is increased because of like the value of help right now, I mean, or I mean in the past of this time of year, the value of help is, is higher than helping somebody in the summer or the spring, right? Because you, you might actually save a life by helping somebody. Whereas like you help somebody in the spring, it right. doesn't really matter. They can just go sleep outside or whatever. Right. I'm not sure how warm it is there where you guys are. Uh, it's pretty cold. I mean, not a, you're farther north than I am, but right now it's brown. It's supposed to get into the teens tonight. Okay. Whatever that means. I, sh- I should have brought a scale with me. It's below zero for you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. We got a big dump of snow, actually, and I thought it was kind of funny. I was walking home from getting some groceries, uh, 
And there are laws. You, you, there's municipal bylaws where you have to shovel your walk, right, uh, within a certain amount of time. Obviously, that's not enforceable. It's ridiculous to even have a law like that. But I was walking past the school, and it wasn't shoveled because it's, uh, I don't know why. I guess because school's out. But they're, I mean, they're obligated to shovel their sidewalk by the same law that a private residence is obligated. But because it's a city-owned property, they don't bother, I, I guess. This the rules don't from? apply to everybody equally. No. Yeah, the laws are for the plebes. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, man. I just I thought you guys might appreciate that. <laughs> I do appreciate that. That's par for the course. So um, during the election or during the, the lead up to the Democratic nomination, I saw, I don't know if it was photoshopped or not, but it was like sidewalk shoveled and then no sidewalk, or no shoveling and then sidewalk shoveled. And on the, the non-shoveled part, there was like a Bernie Sanders sign sort of half poking up through the snow. Like we want, we want the government to come shovel our walk for us. We don't want to do it ourselves sort of thing. <laughs> I thought it was funny. All right, guys, I got a couple, a couple more notes. And you had mentioned the sun. Uh, I want to mention the moon. So during the Ghost of Christmas Future, the the moment before he reaches through the televisions, they show a shot of the full moon, and it's a blood moon. And I okay. think that's supposed to be foreboding and also uh, an anchor to the sun being revealed later. And then speaking of the fatherly figure, when we go into the Ghost of Christmas past, they jump in the um, 1955 taxi cab slash DeLorean with the taxi driver ghost drinking liquor <laughs> while he's driving. Radically. Ghosts can't break the NIP. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they show Frank Cross, young Frank Cross, watching television with his mother on the couch, and then dad comes home. They have no decorations up, and he gives him a package, and it's like a cut of meat, like veal or something like that. And Five pounds. Yeah, five pounds of veal. And he says to him, if you want to choo-choo, you buy it yourself. You know, I don't know what, with all these child labor laws, like preventing kids from working. Um, there's some other... Yeah, no, I mean, and that, that ties into, so he, he had, like, a bad upbringing, right? This father was missing from his life, and it's no, kind I of thought, an... I thought this was great. I thought this was great. He said... Oh, it's, uh, a good, it's a good lesson, for sure. The excuse for not working was that he was four. My kids work already. You know, if they want things, they, they earn money doing jobs. Yeah, but, I mean, generally, generally parents set up um, some sort of uh, small economy inside the household, right, where they, they do, you know, like, tasks to benefit the house and then receive payment from like the parents as opposed to going out into the world um, as like an orphan. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, you could, uh, you get kids still, uh, it's not as much anymore, but when I was growing up, you could go shovel other people's walks at a pretty young age and no one batted an eye at that kind of labor. Not anymore. It's one of those, you well, it's like, well, it's not that. It's just the kids have everything they want, so there's no reason to work for anything. Um, they're entitled. No, I, I, I think there's a story from last year where some, some people were going around shoveling people's driveways, and they got in trouble for not having a license or a permit for it. Sort of like oh. the lemonade stand stuff and, and yeah. uh, maybe even mowing lawns. Or setting up a garden in your front lawn. Or well, wasn't there that uh, lawnmower kid who went and mowed the White House, and Trump was like really happy that he was, you know, that sounds like a setup, his, uh, but, yeah. entrepreneurship and whatever, but everybody else was like decrying that he was promoting child labor. Yeah, you know, my, Mike, I think we do need you back for Zoolander because there's that whole scene where they, they have the, the kids that have hold the signs that say, let me work, let me work. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean... You know, and when it comes down to it, child labor, it's really generally a question of starvation or doing something productive. When I try to broach this subject with people, I bring up the fact that surely child actors are child labor. I'm not sure why we've made an exception for just one industry. That's a very yeah, good point. People, so, yeah, that is if you can start with the hypocrisy, you can usually get a thin edge of the wedge in there and just pound it. I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean... That's a good point. Well, what do you do? Like, the intention is good. We're trying to, like, stop children from being, you know, murdered in factories, I guess, is, is sort of the intention. Or, like, cleaning chimneys and stuff, but people... Uh, I don't so know. The government likes to take no, credit. No, obviously government is not the solution. Right. right, I mean, they come up and they go, well, look at us. We wrote this law that says kids can't work anymore. But, I mean, it really was only capitalism with the accumulation of capital that allowed enough wealth so that kids didn't have to work in order to not starve. Yeah. That's the dance point. It wasn't, it wasn't the choice of, well, either be a happy-go-lucky little free-running-around kid or working in a factory. It was starving or working in a factory. Yeah, and the laws were all trailing. Like, they, were, they came in after the trend was already in place. Sort of like when OSHA was implemented, the trend was already a downward sloping trend in workplace accidents, but then OSHA took credit for making workplaces safer. Similar with weekends, uh, labor unions took credit for that, but it was already being implemented voluntarily due to the capital uh, increase, like you were just mentioning with child labor, and same with yep. child labor laws. Like All these things get co-opted and the credit taken for all of the uh, advances that capitalism provides, but then when regulation gets additional regulation and intervention and then causes a failure in something, then it's the market's fault. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So it was just kind of the, uh, it was the perfect opportunity for um, what were essentially monarchies and dictatorships coming out of the turn of the century um, to use that good intention to, you know, put kids into school and start indoctrinating them and start limiting their options and opportunities, right, to create a more well, I mean, without getting into conspiracy shit, um, it does create a docile working force, working class, um, less ambitious. You can make point-and-fire soldiers out of that system a lot easier than a bunch Sorry, of, you, you talking know, about the Prussian education model? Yeah, essentially, right? Like, a, um, you know, I, I would say child labor laws and, and educational standards sort of came out of the same the same uh, idea, and it was, it was leveraged off of the same good intention, right? And it was to solve problems that didn't exist um, or, or weren't, weren't caused by the lack of those I'll put on my, solutions. I'll put on my Patrick McFarland hat and follow you down the conspiracy trail for a moment here. And I would add that I think labor unions not only advocated for child labor laws to be put in place and compulsory schooling and the minimum wage, all to eliminate competitors to their labor force. Uh, yeah. That well, that's, seems... not, that's not a conspiracy. That's an established fact. I mean, there are quotes from, who was it, like LBJs? Secretary of whatever that you know, this is gonna get rid of the darkies and the unwanted, undesirable peoples. Yeah. So the the reason we have a a forty hour work week and overtime benefits is because Henry Not Ford LBJ. did it voluntarily. FDR, sorry. <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Well, the reason we have a forty hour work week, weekends, and and overtime benefits is because Henry Ford did it voluntarily to attract the best workers, and it became a standard. And then we just wrote laws to to make that you know uh, illegal. Sort of compliance. Right, and then you take that a step further and you get the, the medical uh, insurance because that was added on because there were price freezes in wages. And so you had to come up with alternative means of attracting labor to your, to your job. Which, and which, because you, you couldn't compete on price, you started giving fringe benefits like medical insurance. Mm -hmm. And so then that becomes expected and normal. Or, yeah, and 401ks uh, yeah. were the next thing because there were caps on executive pay back in the 70s. And the 401k was a vehicle that was intended just for you know, CEO type level, executive level, and now it's ubiquitous and, and almost mandatory in many respects uh, and, and becomes the expectation. So when we cross the veil, it's when it goes from a societal expectation to legislature. <laughs> that's my opinion. Once right, we but, it usually, that but it usually starts out with, with uh, the, the market finding a way around an obstacle put in place by government, an impediment that gets overcome, and then the government co-ops it. Yes. 
So there's a there's a line uh, there's a one of the planets that the little prince goes to. Have you ever read Have you ever read the little prince? I'm Antoine, familiar, but no, I don't think so. Antoine Saint Exupery. Um, I'd say it's movie? my favorite book. It's a kids book, but um, so there's a, there's little prince is telling us the stories of all the planets he's been to, and um, one of them is the guy that claims that he's king of the universe. Um, and what is this? He's telling he's telling the little prince what to do. Uh, he says you must stay here, and he says. If if the if his Majesty wants his orders followed, then he should direct me to leave. And then the king says, "Very well, I I demand that you leave." Right? Essentially. So what authority tends to do, especially like unchecked authorities such as monarchs and dictators, uh, is it tells people to do what they're already going to do, and says that they owe them for the privilege of of doing what they were likely to do anyway. If that makes yep. sense. No, it sure so, does. And I, I like that it's, it basically articulates that point in maybe a paragraph and a half, right? Um, it's a good book. Yeah. Yeah, they like to take credit for our voluntary interactions and what we would normally do anyway without them. Yeah. And then they like to then, – then they claim that we owe them something, so then we are obligated to obey when they declare that we have to go fight in some bullshit war or something yeah. like that. It's, um, it's analog, uh, analogous? Yeah, it's analogous to um, – analogous. It's analogous to – um, the relationship between uh, 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 a member of a church and a priest, because whatever whatever connection you have to whatever god you have would, in theory, be there inherent in your being without any direction. And the generally, whatever church you go to asks for some form of uh, monetary compensation for directing you to to God. If that makes sense. I tried to make that as vague and universal as possible. To <laughs> you did you did it. Okay. Um, I mean, yeah, government is a religion. It's a, essentially. A well, I would I would so. say I would say religion is the proto government because like we we had charity, we had organization, we had sets of rules, and then some guy was like, well, let's write them down in a book and write down some stories that that also tell you how to behave, and then at some point all that becomes law. You know. Right. And, and in a lot of ways, it's a much more effective form of government because it, it has no borders. It has no borders, and it also is, you know, it's unverifiable. Yes. So, well, so is the state, you know, right? No, no hypothesis, right? Yeah, so, right. You can't, you can't prove it wrong, so, you know. So taxes are the, uh, the price we pay for something, civilized society or something, something like that? By being uncivilized. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. So, Mike, let me ask you this. Are you familiar with uh, Ralph Rako? Mm, don't think so. So he was a historian, and he was affiliated with the Mises Institute. He gave many um, really great talks. He had this really low, booming voice that was great at storytelling. He's a funny guy. Uh, he died a couple of years ago, but he gave great presentations on the European miracle, the Industrial Revolution, World War One, World War II. Mm. And one of his presentations, he talks about how there was a power struggle between the individual countries and the monarchs in those countries against the religious uh, that, like Robert was saying, was not pertained to a, uh, or contained to a border. And it was in this vacuum, that struggle between them, that allowed the voluntary interaction and capital accumulation to flourish. And that's what sprang forth the Industrial Revolution, because neither one of those two power centers were able to exert control over individuals. And so it was that vacuum, that little gap, that little space that allowed it to, to flourish. I'll find... Just, and it just exploded out of like the smallest... Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So I'll try to find that uh, that talk. It's really good. It's probably two or three hours long, but uh, I'll find it. I'll post it in the show notes below and also email it to you because it's really good. I, I don't know yeah, if it's I, like... Oh, no, please do. Please do. I was just trying to process all that. Yeah, and I don't know if it's like a, a fully, you know, what people accept as the theory in the historian circles or not, but when I heard it, I was like, it was compelling. Um, 
I mean, history is written by the victors sort of thing, right? Like, I mean, you can't, you can trust that somebody's perspective on history is their perspective on history and then do a few more. I mean, the, the stuff we have on, on the Roman Empire was, you know, a lot of accounts by Caesar, so I'm not sure, <laughs> you know what I mean? But He's the, but, most, uh, he's the most non-biased source, right? Yeah. Everyone's a hero in their own story, right, Robert? Well, everybody else be murdered, so it's not like it's not like <laughs> you're going to get their opinion. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I'm sure if he was striving to be unbiased, then I'm sure he's as unbiased as a man can be, or as as he can be, I guess. But that's kind of a non-statement, sure. but but that's kind of how I view history, is my point. So All right, very speaking good. of which, um, if Frank Cross did that on on his uh, you know on the live broadcast and told everyone to be charitable, uh, and it happened now. People would be mining his his Twitter quotes to find out um, violations or contradictions and hypocrisies within Frank Cross, and the meaning his statement would be you know undermined by the idea that the person reading it was a hypocrite, which I I think is kind of really beginning to limit us as a society. Um, the whole ad hominem sort of fallacy, where yeah, I mean a, the yeah. truth is truth, right? I mean Billy Jean's a good song regardless of what Michael Jackson did. I mean. <laughs> Like, sure. no, I, can't, I can't argue with whether or not that's a good piece of art. I can only, you know, try to investigate it. I mean, that's maybe a bad example, but it's sort of the worst one I could think, yeah, I think of. A lot of. I think a lot of people have a different, have a problem separating what people say from the source. Yeah, and, and the truth uh, is true. It is. The truth is truth. I mean, I know Stefan Molyneux has an argument along the lines of, you know, if a guy comes out with a diet book who's, you know, 500 pounds, you're probably not going to read it. Yeah, but but like you said, truth is truth. But it is a time-saving measure to kind of consider the source. But yeah, no, uh, there may profile. be a tendency. There may be a tendency in over, especially with how easy it is, you know, to just go back and see what everybody's ever said ever and yeah. not consider. You know, maybe people are growing and changing and that sort of thing. Yeah, because Frank yeah, Cross I mean, did many things that would have been unsavory up until that moment, right? Yeah, but my point is, like, you're not allowed to have epiphanies or change your mind anymore because you're held to a standard of this device that this machine that's recording and broadcasting everything you do. So it's just interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, it's just, I mean, you can say, you know, if you're Bernie Sanders, what he's saying isn't true because he has three houses. Well, I, no, he's not. He, what he's saying isn't true because it's not true. Um, the idea of helping people is, is a good idea. So when he, if he abstracts what he's saying to, you know, be a little more palatable, you know, when, you know, Bernie Sanders or any politician, right? Sometimes they'll, they'll back right off of, of saying anything. They'll make non-statements and I can't argue with them because they're non-statements or they'll say something that's so universally true. I can't deny it. Whether or not I believe that person is going to, right? The key is to just hold that person to the standard they just, they just proposed, I guess. Yeah, I mean, with him and, and the houses, I mean, that's that's hypocritical. Yes, it is to his message. But it, it doesn't that unto itself doesn't undermine anything he's saying. No, no, it doesn't. Right. It doesn't what attack he his argument. He says he, says he doesn't said. believe his own argument. That's yeah. So I mean, it gives you a good reason to critique and, and and challenge what people say. But I mean, if somebody says like "be excellent to each other and party on, dudes," I'm like, hmm, yeah, that's good. It's a good thing to say. I, I wouldn't be like. No, I wouldn't be like, you know what, you didn't party on the whole time. I've seen you not party. Like, so. I just thought it was funny because, like, Frank Cross now, if they even tried to make this movie again, I'm not sure what you would do. <laughs> it would just be like somebody doing that meme where the person has, like, the two tweets side by side, right, and then the dates, you know, uh-huh. the, two, the two Salon articles, the two Huffington Post articles, you know, before and after yeah. the election. That kind of, that kind of uh, pettiness doesn't get us anywhere. No, but it is fun. Yes. It is oh, no, fun, it's... but yeah, we should allow for growth. That's true. Yeah. So 
I wanted to ask two two more questions related to the to the back end of this movie. Well, it's really one question, but it's related to this movie and and Trading Places. After what Loudermilk did and what Aykroyd did at the end of Trading Places, would you ever hire them back? Um, I've never seen Trading Places. Well, he he basically goes on a, a violent rampage as well, waving a gun around, planting drugs, trying to get the Eddie Murphy character um, fired. And Loudermilk, of course, goes around and, and attempts to murder Bill Murray. Would and I Bill hire Murray, like has his epiphany and hires Loudermilk back at a higher level and, and Oh, I see. Um well okay. Hmm. So Frank Cross, uh Bill Murray, um, had a lot of guilt weighing on him for his decisions and he was maybe overcorrecting in that moment, but he saw I, I, I mean theoretically he saw why this person was in the position he was. Which, by the way, like he gets fired and his wife leaves him immediately. Like, what what kind of relationship did this did Laudermilk have? Like, this just doesn't make any sense. Right. <laughs> but whatever, he had a really shitty time leading up to it. And Bill Murray is, you know, kind of a bit more cognizant of his influence and his responsibility as a as a leader, a, aka father, right? Um, so I think that he just kind of over. I mean, it's an exaggeration of the point. Obviously, if somebody's shooting you with the shotgun, you don't. But he was like delirious too, right? So. Uh, I don't know if I would do that, but I've never been visited by three spirits that showed me a better path to find balance in my life that's more in tune with nature. So, I mean, I'd probably just do, like, normal, normal non-spiritually influenced things, like fire his ass, or maybe even murder him, or kill him because he's in self-defense. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know. I, I, think it's, I think it's an exaggerated point to illustrate, like, how, how guilty Frank Cross felt about his decisions, something like that. Right, but he was also trying to have Loudermilk not kill him, right? So oh, I see. A little bit of self-serving. No, I think, I think it was a genuine, I think it was a genuine, um, uh, a genuine proposal, offer, and then Loudermilk helped him uh, take over the station, which was a violation of the property rights of the person that owned that station. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't of, know if, I don't know if he's going to be able to have him hired back because, I mean, he's immediately fired. Frank well, they probably... They both have to go to jail, realistically, unless everyone involved was so moved by the spirit of Christmas that they all didn't <laughs> press charges. Or, but, but like, They're surely the guy that was sexually assaulted would... Uh, okay, that is a, an unforgivable plot hole, unfortunately. So I'll just put it in the list of, of movies that, I, that I've ruined for myself by thinking about them too much. That's what we do here. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fair. But I think, I mean, the spirit of it is supposed to be, I mean, it's allegorical. It's not, it's, when you start involving ghosts and epiphanies and, and all that kind of stuff, then you're, you're into allegory and myth. You're not into real shit, right? So the use of violence in that was transferred from being against Frank Cross to being against the institution that was um, giving Cross that power. And then Cross was able to, to change the, the way that power was used, you know, the media mind control or whatever, something like that. So yeah, you're right though. It does advocate the use of violence very briefly at the very end to spread the joy of Christmas. Yeah, by force. We'll show them That's our right. ways of peace by force. <laughs> you will be happy and joyful and cheer yeah. and be goodwill towards men, except for me, by the way. Yeah. yeah, well, it's like the mass graves filled with people that didn't know how to share properly. That's right. That is is what it is. I think I like to try to hang on to the the light, the dying light. As it's you know, I feel like it's going to return soon. So. <laughs> Rapidly receding into yeah. the distance. Any more points before we wrap this up and give our final yeah. uh, reviews? No. I just yeah. wanted to call out the uh, secretary when she took her son to the doctor. She said, "You know, I think doctor is Latin for thief." Two hundred dollars to I don't know tell tell him that nothing was wrong with him or you know yeah. he wasn't talking for whatever reason or no 
didn't know why. And I found that kind of interesting because this is back when, you know, medicine wasn't nearly as um, messed up as it is now with, with all the inter- interventions, government interventions. And uh, I wonder how much that bill would be today here. Probably well over $1,000. Well, yeah, I mean, the bill and the government interventions is one thing, but also it kind of assumes that going to the doctor isn't a risk. It's not a gamble. You are gambling. There's no guarantee that the doctor is going to know what's wrong with you. Yeah, but you uh, can medicine tell. is not it's not perfect. Like I bitch about every movie I see. That's not that, that's not an indictment of the movie industry. I mean, I guess it sort of is, but <laughs> but um, and presumably she went to a shrink to figure out the psychology of the kid, and the, and the doctor was like, "Ha nothing. I don't know. His dad's gone. He doesn't speak." It's got some Latin words, or some some Freudian bullshit, or some pseudo Freudian stuff that doesn't make any sense, and you know. But you're right. I mean, it, it's a risk, but you can certainly bitch about a, a consumer choice that didn't go your way, since there's there's no return policy. Yeah, that's that's fair. But it is like, you are gambling. I just yeah. No, the consumer should be like way more savvy, especially when it comes to stuff where you, that you can't return. Yeah, that's why you do your homework ahead of time. Oh, it's funny because my um my nephew's uh, studying uh, traditional Chinese medicine. Um getting into acupuncture and we were talking about uh, the government of Canada wants to regulate herb usage. I mean, yeah, they want to certify and have certifications and stuff. That's not just self-regulated, but um, from a governing body, which I'm completely opposed to, obviously. Um, Awesome. Yeah. There's a, there's a totally unrelated to that, but there's a uh, politician in Hawaii that wants to regulate uh, in-app purchases on video games, like loot boxes and that sort of thing. Oh, well played, yeah. I guess because it's technically gambling, something like that? Yeah, so, right. So yeah, Exactly. So he thinks yeah. it's technically gambling, so he's going to make it so that it's illegal for a kid you know, to buy it. And then, but he, I don't know if these people realize what they do, but they must. They think it's awesome because then that re- justifies you know, more money because you have to like, have some sort of a board that reviews all video games now. Yeah, I mean, I think people that make laws know they're going to make money off them. Um, I mean, I I don't know if it's, I forget what it was, but I know in China, like they have this massive, massive regulatory hurdle in order to even release any kind of a video game in China. They have to pass like a censor board and all kinds of other boards. And so like the the approval process is like super long and onerous. I don't know if it's like six months or a year or something like that, but... I can imagine you spend all this time and resources to make a game, and then you know a year later, all your graphics look like a year out of date and all this and whatever. It must not be great, but yeah, it'd be awful. Yeah, you know, I mean, these government people—they think they're doing a good thing, but in reality, they're just. I don't ah, think. I think you're giving them way too much credit. Am I? That they think they're doing a good thing. I don't think people that try to uh, exert power over other people. Are, like there are very few that do that and think they're doing a good thing. I think they're pleasuring themselves. I think they're. I think, I think he is too. I yeah. I agree. I think, but he sells it as I'm protecting the children. Yeah, they always right? do. Because that's how you got to sell it. That's how you got. One hundred percent. Yeah. How do you want your your um your oppression wrap? Terrorism or <laughs> protecting children? And a knife protecting children wrapping paper. Uh. You got to vote for this. Like your life depends on it. Oh, you got to watch Frank Cross's special. Well, the, the reason I was mentioning um, acupuncture, Chinese medicine, and stuff is well. First of all, I respect it, but there's a lot of China, uh, there's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there historically in every field, but especially medicine because we don't always understand it. So it it's the same. It, it's a very like it's a very bountiful um, uh, nest of. Uh, of intent that you can extract from people. You can be like, we've got to protect the children and look at these 
scumbags selling oils to people and crystals and we have to protect the consumer. We always have to protect people because you know, one asshole was a liar, you know, when right. lying is already uh, socially not acceptable and pretty much against the law in any kind of uh, detrimental way where you harm somebody through lying. It's it's already a crime. So um, and it already in having those people out there, I think, makes a more savvy consumer. If you have this government body One's that bitten. pledges to protect you, yeah, and then they come along and say, oh, we're going to protect you and keep all these people away from you, then you're basically going, oh, you're deer in the headlights. I'm like, well, he must be telling the truth because there's already this government agency that's protecting me from people like that aren't. So it, it creates a false sense of security among the consumers, and I think it makes a lazier and dumber consumer, or at least yeah, it's like, gullible consumer. Yeah, I might like... Uh... I had it. It's lost now anyway. I am just overwhelmed oh. when I think about it. Um, <laughs> okay. Oh, we move uh, on and... Oh, just, no, just, just the tinfoil hat comes on here for a second because it, there's all these overlapping sort of mechanisms, right? So when people start to pass on this kind of information to their children, we start making um, literature about how you shouldn't listen to your parents. You know what I mean? Like, old people don't deserve to vote and things like that. Those kinds of sentiments. Like, oh, a bunch of old people are all racist and they're they're behind the times and the information they're giving you on not putting crystals on your chest to, to be able to like, you know, beat cancer or whatever, uh, is, is old conservative bullshit and you need to embrace, you know what I mean? And so yeah. we, we, we undermine, we undermine the, the consumer and the, and, and parenting in, in very similar ways is all I'm saying. So like the, the father state, the corrupt father state, the nanny state, whatever you want to call it. Um, is, is a bad parent, you know what I mean? As, as well as, as, like, the state is interested in destroying proprietorship and family at the same time, right? So, you know, tinfoil hats on, it's not, it's not a coincidence to me that these things all sort of coalesce into the same, same direction, the same sort of uh, driving force. Well, I don't think you need to have a tinfoil hat on to follow that line of thinking. I, I think it makes perfect sense. Oh, for the okay. Sorry, it, it go, I was just preemptively yeah. doing it then because it goes way further for me, so... Okay, well, I don't. Yeah, I, I think the state has a vested interest in becoming the surrogate father, and the, you know, it's a survival mechanism for the state. I mean, if you, yeah. if you, you know, you bribe essentially a ton of voters and other people with a bunch of stuff that you've stolen from other people, you're going to create an entire class and group of people that are going to support you. Yeah. And depend on you for their livelihood. Ah, the which is class, if you will. okay. So this is why it's important to take care of our neighbors so they don't need the state <laughs> information. Give, there you go. There yeah. You go. Now don't don't necessarily give the guy like money for booze, but do try to like you know contribute to the infrastructure, the social infrastructure of your neighborhood, or even hand out sandwiches or something, right? Yeah, Make man, me a sandwich. Yeah. Right, he's back. You got to get a um. Robert has to get some sort of icon or some sort of uh, avatar because I'm I'm looking at a phone number on white. I have complained about Daniel multiple times to put a little face of me or something on the screen, but he won't do it. So maybe if you yell at him, too, maybe he will. Uh, as far as I know, that feature's not available. Okay. Oh, fuck. I, next time I come I over, completely undermine I, come over, I'll, I'll I completely undermine the conclusion again. Can we say it? Can we just do it? Mankind should, you, should be your business as well as business. The foundation, the foundation of, of enterprise and, and commerce is people. So we should try to treat people in such a way that they don't need Big Brother. Because we maximize... We maximize the potential for, for industry and, and commerce when we're nice to each other. That's, yeah, and, that's, and that was my takeaway. Well, sure, and government hampers business at every end <laughs> and steals from us. I mean, how much more charitable would we be if we didn't have you know, 30% of our money stolen from us? I don't know. All I know is that like, 
from from our end, we can only affect that much, right? So, like, you know, plant gardens in your front lawn and give them to poor people or something. It's a, it's, it's, that's our side of the fight, I think, instead of the big stuff. We'll just win by a thousand cuts, right? That'd be good, yeah. Be the change you want to see in the world. All right, let's All get right, to our summary and review for everyone. Mike C., you want to go first? Um, uh, yeah, black and gold. Nice. 100%. Silver and gold. Silver and gold. Silver and gold. Uh, yeah, I loved it. Um, I think they took everything good about the source material, updated it. Um, they they made an indictment of not capitalism but consumerism and, and our detachment, you know, being raised by television, stuff like that. Um, just a bit of esoteric symbolism and some good themes. Um, Bill Murray's a fucking god, so so to speak, in terms of comedy. Part of my French. Black yeah, no, I mean he'll he'll definitely be missed when he finally kicks off the mortal coil. Uh, I'm surprised he's had such a lengthy career at being as funny as he is. I, it's amazing. Um, Black and Gold also for me, uh, I have my issues with especially the original source material. Um, I wish it had a few more points made about how we serve each other with capitalism, how that's how you make money in a capitalistic system, by serving and providing value to others, and how Frank Cross, even though he was being a complete asshole, he was providing a ton of value to people. But the, the movie, I think, in this version, like Mike is saying, it's more about his being a well-rounded individual, and you can also be not an asshole. So, but, you know, everything else I've already said in this episode also gets put into this, but uh, black and gold. All right, well, it's going to go trifecta with the black and gold, and I think that that's just going to be my longstanding, anytime Bill Murray's in a movie, it's going to be black and gold. I can't think of one movie that I don't like with him in it. Um, we had done uh, Ghostbusters way back when, and if if he was in fact ad libbing in this one as well, that just only goes to grow his legend. Um, this yeah. is a, a really fun movie, and, and I think we can maybe it's, it's our line of Christmas movies we've been doing this whole month, and so this is going to come out on uh, New Year's or sorry Christmas Eve, everyone Christmas Eve. So uh, I hope that it puts you in good cheer at the at the very end. It, it made these two uh, ladies cry uh, at the the weepy finish. And, you know, just, uh, you know, hold your family a little tighter. Um, open a gift on uh, Christmas Eve and then save the rest for the morning. Don't do not do it all at once. That's what we do in our household. But, uh, yeah, Super Black and Gold, it's, uh, it's one of those movies that I think I'll, uh, I'll try to watch this time of year every year. Yeah, Bill Murray's just a legend. He's hilarious. So, yeah, check it out if you haven't seen it. Uh, rewatch Ghostbusters, rewatch this, and pretty much anything else with him in it. He's just amazing. Yeah, this one, uh, this one gets me through Christmas every year. Because it's, uh, I'm usually cynical by the time end of November, so uh, it kind of gives me a kick in the ass. It's kind of nice. All right, well, very good. Well, hey guys, uh, thank you all for joining us, our audience. This episode can be found at actualanarchy.com/slash/fifty-six. Mike C was our guest at the uh, episode forty-seven, so you can find his music listed there and also on the show notes page here. And um, if you like what we do here, do check us out at the uh, Patreon.com/slash/readrothbard. We did just update one of the bonuses, and that is the Rothbard Repository, which is a searchable database of Murray Rothbard lectures. I just added twenty-three new lectures. Ten of them are video of Murray speaking. So now there's, I think, 84 lectures over 100 hours of video and audio that uh, you can search for the timestamp of uh, hundreds and thousands of quotes of things that he said on any topic that you can think up. And uh, that's a bonus at the $10 a month support level. You also get the behind the scenes and the Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which we uh, share with our Patreon supporters. So uh, thank you for joining us and uh, Merry Christmas, everyone. I'll hand the mic over to, to Mike, Mike to Mike for final Christmas message and then to Robert and then we'll close out the show. God bless us, everyone.
<laughs> Whatever that means to you. Um, forgive what you can. Give what you can. Um, save enough for yourself to keep helping others kind of thing. The love you make is equal to the love you take. Merry Christmas, Happy everybody. Yeah. Merry Christmas. All right. Merry Christmas, everyone. We might do a little bit of Kathleen Trinero Drive coming up now. Chipmunks, C-H-I-P-M-U-N-K, we're the chipmunks, guaranteed to brighten your day, do, 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 do,